Welcome to the Daily Drive. This show is dedicated to keeping you educated, informed, and most importantly, driven to succeed. We want your feedback, so call us at 1-800-437-5121. Everyone on the Daily Drive Show team hopes you enjoy this show. Here's your host, Ken Noor. Welcome to the Daily Drive. I hope you're having the best day of your life. I know I am. We have had some technical difficulties uh, on a couple of different shows with our recordings, but we finally got them straightened away. And uh, good things come to those that wait. And today uh, we are proud and happy to finally introduce the interview of Amy Bielski of Ripple Effect. And let's pick that interview up right here, right now. Amy, welcome to the show. How are you today? Great. Thanks for having me. We really do appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to be with us. Amy, you are the CEO and the founder of Ripple Effect. What is Ripple Effect? Well, we are a woman-owned company based in Rockville. We work with government, private, and nonprofit clients, and we have about 150 employees working across three core areas. We have policy and program management, research and evaluation, and communications and outreach. So explain that to me, policy and program management. That was a great elevator pitch, but I must not be in your target market. <laughs> yes. So uh, as, as you probably know, the government likes to create programs and develop policies to help further their mission. And so a lot of these policies require input from their constituents or their stakeholders. So we are the people who read all those public comments and summarize what people are saying. We get together um, events where people uh, can share best practices and talk about uh, their opinions about these policies. And then we implement those policies, which sometimes requires compliance and checklists. And also afterwards, we evaluate whether it was effective. So we have the full uh, life cycle of program and policy development. Can you give me an example of policy and program management that you did, or is that not allowed to, you're not under non-disclosure when you're doing government stuff? Well, some of it, obviously, we can't talk about, and we're often the people, we're the people behind the curtains, but uh, like many of the Medicare and Medicaid policies that are being released right now, we have a large staff of people who are lawyers and public health specialists and scientists who are reading those public comments and summarizing what they're saying so that we can give them to the policy decision makers and they can decide what they want to do with that information and how they might want to change or evolve the policy before they release it to the public. Are you ever involved in the formulation of the type of questions that might be asked or are these just free-form comments and, and replies? We, obviously, our clients are at different stages, so we play any role that we need to. Sometimes we help them formulate what they want to ask or how they want to ask it to get better answers. Um, sometimes they've already developed the policy, so they're in the implementation phase or the program, they've developed the program, and so we're helping them think through, you know, what are all the steps to implementing it. And that is why we our company is designed with these three areas, because all the work is very interdisciplinary. So... You know, when you develop a program, you need to communicate about it. You need to talk about, um, 
you know, how how do people comply and what are the rules and get stakeholder input. And then the research and evaluation team does a lot of analysis on the data and, um, you know, can evaluate whether the policy or program is effective. So our teams work closely together, and I think that's our sweet spot is these cross-disciplinary projects. Wow. So do you do this mostly in government? You said you know, uh, government, private, and nonprofit. Is, it sounds like more of a government fit than anything else. We do. Most of our work is with the federal government. We do have some nonprofits that are similar to the government, very mission-driven. And a lot of our work is in health and healthcare spaces. So folks like the NIH and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services and also some offices within the Department of Defense that work with um the, we work a lot with the congressionally directed medical research program. So we have lots of scientists, PhDs, people who focus in health and healthcare in our company. Some of that stuff sounds like it could get pretty technical. Some of the laws are, you know, 100, 200 pages long. So just reading the law itself is requires a lot of technical expertise. So you, as a company, I would imagine, also have a challenge to some degree with neutrality. Well, we don't. We make that important as part of our vetting and selecting who we hire. And we, in particular, as a company, don't have any opinions on the work that we do So to, to stay neutral. That's very important to us. Maintaining this neutrality in all of this has got to be something you're always focusing on. Absolutely. I think that's probably unique to your space. Yes, I, I definitely think it's unique to uh, the type of work that we do. A lot of our, um, a lot of folks in government contracting do a lot of what we do, but not in at the level of policy engagement and programmatic level uh, that we do. We work a lot with expert stakeholders like scientists and universities and um, healthcare systems and nurses and doctors. So we're really dealing with. Uh, not the general public. We're dealing with expert stakeholders for a lot of our work. I had a, a colleague of mine say that business is invented. You know, it does. It, it, we can just invent anything and do anything we want. But how did you get into this? Part of it is me personally. I just fell into it. I my background is in graphic design and um, technology, and so a lot of these. Uh, these policies and programs, we're communicating, as you can imagine, about very complex stuff. And so what we're really good at is taking something that's very hard to understand or very complex and making it simple, especially with our communications team and how we graphically might represent a process or, you know, turning it into a video to summarize the key points of a policy or program. So it's it's really taking the complex and making it simple is what our group is good at. And some of my graphics background and IT background helped lead us to this path. You just woke up one day and said, hey, I'm going to start drawing simplistic pictures on policy for people. Oh, come on. How did you, what, what was the spark in the moment that, that said, I'm going to, I'm going to create ripple effect. Yeah. I, <laughs> I think like most people, you, kind of figure out what you're good at and find a hole in the marketplace. And I know the folks here laugh at me because I always like to communicate with a whiteboard behind me. So um, anytime I'm trying to explain something, there's a flow chart or a diagram or something that comes on the whiteboard out of it. But uh, we found that our clients really kind of gravitated towards us to do these kind of things and that there weren't a lot of 
companies in the marketplace who who do them. And so it originally started with me as the founder, and it was me and a helper, and me and two helpers, and it kind of grew out of there. And we've been disciplined and intentional about staying in our space and doing what we do well, and it's um, helped us grow because we're unique in the marketplace. I'd like to describe that as an opportunist. I mean, you were doing something, and you just found a niche and and took the opportunity and ran with it. Yes. That's a, that's a great description. I want you to help me and think back to that, uh, you know, that first day because I I, I like to do a read in on on people when I uh, interview them. I actually can't stand it when I see or hear uh, interviews, and I can tell that the person there has no idea who they're talking to. So you <laughs> were an executive somewhere else, and that that had to be a moment, a pretty intense decision to leave what you're doing to jump off of a cliff, so to speak. When you're an executive within a company, what I found is that I only had so much control over certain pieces. I was responsible for technical delivery to our clients, but I didn't have control over things like, you know, what look like and, you know, what are people's salaries and how are they incentivized with benefits and flexibility and how good is the computer on their desk? So with that, I, I feel like all those things are important to, to delivering you know, a successful solution. So I really felt it that I wanted to do it on my own. You find culture to be really important. Yes. We've created a very intentional culture here. Okay. What, what is it? So as I mentioned before, my background is in graphics and IT. And um, my first projects were in web development. And I developed websites when there were 16 colors on the web. And they said, there's this thing called web development. Could you figure it out? And so I said, sure. It's because I'm committed to lifelong learning. And I think that that is the core of this company and why it's been successful is because everyone here, or life, everyone here is a lifelong learner. And that is part of our recruitment process and our vetting process is we look for people who are curious, and like to learn new things because what the world looks like today is not what it's going to look like tomorrow. In order to be responsive to our clients, we need that. In the technology space, to be successful at all, you have to be a lifelong learner because things are so rapidly, so rapidly changing uh, that if you're unwilling or unable, or better yet, I think in, in our space, we find people that come in that are um, uncomfortable, actually. They, they think they can be a lifelong learner, but when the rubber meets the road, the commitment to doing that, it actually takes effort. Yes, it takes effort. And I think it also takes support of, the, of a company. And so we, you know, actually make sure that a percentage of our revenue is dedicated to providing professional development opportunities for staff. We have a strong commitment to mentoring and we also have a very flexible work culture. We're focused on, you know, delivering what's expected of you, not a button and a seat from nine to five. And so, you know, we have been able to find some great talent that in other spaces and in other companies was not able to succeed because it was more about attendance and less about performance. At the same time, you obviously have some roles that are, customer service oriented and customers expect somebody there from eight to five. So not everybody can be in that flex spot, right? 
everyone has a slightly different um, approach to flexibility, but we've found creative ways to offer flexibility even for those people who are sitting at our client site. So things like floating holidays, like all of our holidays are floating. So when a client says, I need this delivered tomorrow, and they decide to work on a holiday, those are hours that aren't lost. They can use them later. Well, give me another example of how you provide that flexibility. So the folks that, for example, have um, less control over their schedule, we um, offer them more PTO than the people who have a very flexible schedule. So just by giving them a greater amount of PTO, they can take more time off. There's a delineation that you must have between those that have control or less control uh, to, to identify which roles are going to be given which level of time. We also give, at the end of the year, when we give end-of-the-year bonuses, we allow employees to decide whether they would prefer to have that bonus as money or if they would ha like to have it as time off. Because everyone is different and has different needs. Are you dealing with a lot of remote workers? You also alluded to those that are sitting on customer sites, so you obviously have some on-site uh, personnel as well. Yeah, about half of our staff are on the client site, and so they work full-time at the client site. The other half of our staff are either at our Ripple Effect headquarters in Rockville, but we also have a, quite a large remote workforce. Um, some of our projects, they, we, you know, you can imagine these public comment periods. We work, 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 work for like three weeks straight, and so it's like a big effort, and then it's done. <laughs> so right. we have this kind of pool of people who we pull in when we need them. On demand or project-based. Yes. I gotcha. Is it uh, difficult extending uh, this culture into remote workers? It, you know, it has its challenges, obviously, because there's something to be said about you know, interacting with each other, but we have lots of virtual tools that bring them into the fold. And it starts from the day we start interviewing all the way through, you know, their time here at our company. Talk to me a little bit about the keys to um, interviewing a remote worker. That's a totally different animal than interviewing a person who sits in your office. Yeah, we have a very uh, multi-step and rigorous process because we think the investment is worth it up front to make sure they're going to be a right fit. And, and we've learned over the years what are some of the right questions to ask and examples to get um, to learn if they can work in a remote capacity. I think going based on what you were describing in your culture, it's more about results than it is about attendance. So you have probably built a pretty robust uh, management methodology for identifying what it is a given employee needs to accomplish to be successful. I think it has also a lot to do with the supervisors and project managers because they're the ones who drive the expectations. So, you know, finding people who don't have that butt in seat mentality and that, that seeing a person is the only way that they can supervise them is an important part of this process. I don't know that people come with that completely built in there. I think there's some some predisposition to trying to deal with somebody remotely versus, uh, you know, seeing them. I think experienced managers are more likely to be dealing with people they're used to seeing. Yes. I mean, there is some adjustment that happens for some people, but it's kind of built into the culture and how we do things. So they quickly, you know, transition to that expectation. 
All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did, and I am glad, I am absolutely certain that good things come to those that wait. And that was an excellent interview, but so much stuff to cover. We've got to cut it in half like we always do and put another second edition together. So join in tomorrow on The Daily Drive as we continue this interview with Amy from Mephril Effect, and we'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening, and thanks to our sponsor, That Company. Why is That Company the white-label digital marketing provider for some of the biggest agencies in the industry? Because we get results, we retain clients, and we deliver profitability. Visit www.thatcompany.com to find out how we can make your agency more profitable. If you want to give us feedback, call us now at 1-800-437-5121 or drop by dailydriveshow.com. Make sure you add us to your Alexa daily briefing skill. Don't forget that you can listen to us live every day on WQBQ at 7.30 a.m. The show wouldn't be possible without the Daily Drive Show team, executive producer Rob the Hitchhiker Young, web guru Taj Royer, and the audio man with the plan shoddy don't forget to tune in tomorrow